Don't you love sermons and songs? We are to adore our Lord. Let's go to him now. Lord, the words that we speak are inadequate. But you've given us words in your word to describe. And we're grateful for that. You are holy, holy, holy. And so, Lord, now as we submit our will to you, submit our minds to you, we ask that you would give us understanding by your spirit about you, Lord Jesus. Yet again, another picture. Lord, you have described yourself through your spirit, through the men who you inspired to write your word, that you are the lion of the tribe of Judah. Help us understand just maybe a little bit more about what that means. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, we've traveled far during this Christmas season, and we haven't even left home. Isn't that great? And through the teaching of the Scripture... The birth of the Messiah was the starting point. We didn't stay at the manger, but we started there. We glanced at the birth of Jesus, and we went on. We traveled. And we traveled back even before the creation, even before God said, let there be, and there was. We witnessed and we, we re- reflected on the blessed Trinity. Three persons has been revealed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perfect harmony, perfect relationship the Godhead has. Always have, always will be. And out of sheer delight to bring glory to himself, God spoke the creation into existence. And what makes Christmas Christmas is that the agent through which all came to be, the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God, became flesh. And he dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. And the Apostle John describes him this way. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Who is this one full of grace and truth? What is his name? Well, John tells us in John 1.17, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This one, deity clothed himself in humanity. Is Jesus the Messiah, the Christ, the Creator, limitless in every aspect of who He is, took on every limitation of human creature, except one aspect. See, Jesus was not conceived in, nor did He receive a sinful nature. A human nature, yes, but not a sinful human nature. This is what He was, like we can think about Adam before He fell. Adam did not have a sinful nature human nature. In Psalm 51, 5, we read David's extreme sorrow because of his sin, committing adultery with another man's wife, and then effectively hiring others to murder her husband. That's about as low as a man can go, you think? And David understands his sin and tells God, in sin did my mother conceive me. And what this simply means is that David was acknowledging that he understands that he was a sinner even before he was born. His nature came along with who he was. But how we need to keep this sobering truth in mind. Sinful nature knows no bounds, even with Christians. All of us are capable of committing the most vile sins at the most inconvenient times, at the worst of times. But Jesus, 
as deity made flesh, did not have a sinful human nature. God was and is his father, not Adam. And it was through Adam that we all inherited a sinful nature, our natural bent towards sin. And so, deity walking around in human form, born according to some March 20th, 6 BC, had a purpose for coming. A virgin, Mary, bore Jesus and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. And as we learned a couple of weeks ago, it was not just any place. It was not just any manger. It was most likely a place called the Tower of the Flock, a place at the outskirts of Bethlehem where the temple shepherds went to birth the lambs in their care. And at the tower, the shepherds birthed the lambs, tied their legs together with swaddling cloths, and laid them on a stone manger to inspect them and making sure that they were qualified to be Passover lambs, sacrifices without spot or blemish. And on the night that Jesus was born, when the angels told the shepherds that Christ indeed was born and they would find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, they knew exactly where to look. And so they dropped what they were doing in their shepherding and paid Jesus, the Lamb of God, a visit. And pastor and author James Shudder, or Scudder, who did the research I just pointed out to you, finishes his thought about Christ's birth in this way. How incredible is it that the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, was born in the exact place where the sacrificial lambs for the temple were born. Isn't it amazing? Just coincidence, I know, but, you know. Throughout Christ's life, though, he, though he is fully human, and though he was fully tempted to sin like we all are in every way just like we are, never once yielded an attitude or thought or word or deed, never yielding once. Can you imagine that? Remember how Jesus went into the wilderness after his baptism and during 40 days was continuously harassed by the devil during his fast all through that time. And then when the de- Jesus finally had enough of this and he told Satan to scram, Luke writes this in Luke 14 or 4.13, he says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him, not forever, but until an opportune time. See, the devil would return again and again throughout the days of Christ's ministry. And even more importantly, or even more intensely in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is what the enemy does to us as well. Would you agree? He's always probing, always looking for cheeks in our armor and for that one spot. And unfortunately for many, for that large number of spots that he can exploit. But as followers of Christ, we can rejoice in Jesus. Not only did he take away our sin as God's lamb, he also sent to us the Holy Spirit who empowers us, protects us, prays for us, and so much more in our struggle against sin. Do you struggle against sin? If you don't, there's a problem, right? Here's what John says in his first letter. In 1 John 4, 4, he says, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is what? Greater than he is in the world. Isn't that a wonderful thing? See, the, 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 the bottom line, the, the power of this 
is so significant. See, we never, as believers in Christ, never have to yield to sin. We never have to. Our Lord, by His Spirit, has given us everything we need to obtain victory. Do you believe this? Do you believe this with conviction? That's the key, isn't it? But back to the life of the Lamb of God. As I mentioned, and as Scripture makes abundantly clear, Jesus is God's spotless Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He offered Himself as a perfect sacrifice. And some of His last words that He, before He gave up His Spirit to the Father, were these. It is finished. Paid in full. The sin debt that we owe holy God because of our sin has been completely paid. This is the Lamb of God. This is the second person of the Trinity made flesh. But as glorious and mysterious beyond words as the death of the sinless Son of God was, there was something else that he needed to do to secure our redemption. As God's eternal high priest, he took his own blood untainted by sin, entered into the Holy of Holies in heaven and perfectly sprinkled it in front of the heavenly Ark of the Covenant. Remember how the Day of Atonement in the Old Covenant, the high priest would go into the holiest place of the physical tabernacle and later on into the temple, and he took the blood of a goat, and he would sprinkle it seven times on the earthly Ark of the Covenant, and the sins of the people would be covered over for a year. And then the next year, he'd have to repeat the process, hoping he would do it right. Because if he did it wrong, God would kill him on the spot, and the sins of the people would not be covered over for that year. But in order for the sins of the people to be covered, it was not enough for the high priest to merely kill the animal. It was not enough just to collect the blood into a container. It was not enough for him to go into the Holy of Holies and stand before the Ark of the Covenant. No, what did he have to do? He had to apply the blood, and then the sins were covered over for the, for the year. It was the same way with our great high priest. Jesus, deity made flesh, God's lamb and sin bearer, took his own blood in hand. And when he applied his blood in front of the heavenly ark of the covenant, all sins, all sins were covered over, not just for a year, but for how long? forever. And now, what is God's high priest doing right now in heaven? He's interceding. He's praying on our behalf. Isn't that wonderful? He's praying for us, taking our feeble prayers and mingling them with his own almighty prayers and placing them before the Father like incense. The work of redemption is done. Jesus, the high priest, sat down at the right hand of the Father But his work of intercession, praying for all of his people, continues. And here again, from J.C. Ryle's book, A Call to Prayer, to encourage us to spend time in his presence, pouring out our hearts before him. Here's what he says. The ear of the Lord Jesus is ever open to the cry of all who want mercy and grace. It is his office to help them. Their prayer is his delight. Do you believe that Jesus delights in our prayers? If you do, do you pray? How much do you pray? It's challenging. Just saying. But is this not an encouragement to spend much time 
with our Lord in prayer. God's high priest, our heavenly high priest, is waiting for you and for me to pray. He wants to intermingle our poor prayers with his almighty prayers to the Father. And so today, in our Christmas journey 2020, we come to our last picture, our last symbol of Messiah, Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Let's take in some of the awesomeness, some of the majesty of this picture, shall we? It's wonderful. But first, why a lion? Why is Jesus pictured this way as a lion? Let's get the mindset of those who lived over there back then. Let me give you some several quotes I ran across as I was preparing for this. First of all, a lion weighs about 400 pounds on average. He stands about four feet tall at the shoulder. They can run about 50 miles an hour for a short distance. More than enough time, more than enough um, speed to catch their prey to include people. Sometimes they do that, don't they? The Israelites knew about lions, and they knew them as ruthless, almost unstoppable killers, taking from the flock at will. They frequently work from ambush in that part of the world. Now, you look in Africa and the places, they're kind of out there. But in Israel and Palestine area, they just kind of hid themselves. But even when not actively hunting, their roar, which is heard for about five miles around, served to spread fear to everyone nearby. No doubt many more people had heard a lion than seen one, and this only heightened the fear factor. Needless to say, lions were very scary back then, and now I would say as well. God used them as agents of punishment. Did you know that? God sent lions to kill people. And even the mention of their teeth, their paws, or their mouths made the fears of people rise to the top in their hearts and minds. Just think about their teeth. I don't know if you've seen pictures of lion's teeth, but oh, my word, amazing. (laughs) To the psalmist, wicked people acted like lions, and Scripture even compares God himself in his destructive wrath with a lion, as we read in Hosea 5.14. He says, I, even I, will rend and go away. I will carry off and none shall rescue. The carved lions flanking Solomon's throne serve as graphic reminders of the king's absolute power, as we read in 1 Kings 19 and 20. The throne had six steps, and 12 lions stood there, one on each end of a step of the six steps. The like of it was never seen in any other kingdom. But as powerful as lions are, there were people who actually killed them in the Old Testament. We know this to be true, right? We think about... Solomon, or or Samson. We think about David and even David's mighty men, Benaiah. Can you imagine how fearless these men were, not only to stare lions down, but to take them out? And of course, when we think of lions, Daniel comes to mind, don't we? Daniel being there in 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 that lion's den, and he was there suffering for righteousness. But what did the Lord do? Close the mouths of those lions. In short, when people in Bible times experienced a lion, they thought about them much like we do. (laughs) Fearsome, majestic, powerful animals with overwhelming destructive force and the complete ability to subdue one's enemies. 
Now, suppose if I could actually get on the lion's good side and have him as a pet, I would love for him to be my protector. What about you? And so now that we have a picture of a lion kind of etched in our minds, turn with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 49, 8 to 12. Genesis 49, 8 to 12. And we'll see here the first mention of a lion in relation to Messiah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's cub, literally a young lion, not like a little baby lion, kind of cute, right? But there was a young lion here. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's coal to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth are whiter than milk. That's a lot of kind of weird stuff, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. But if we remember when we went through Genesis a couple of years ago, remember that? that this was a time when Jacob blessed his sons right before he passed away. Now, Jacob heaps praise and honor on Judah for a number of reasons, but the most important one is in the form of a messianic prediction, a prophecy, a blessing. See, Jacob described Judah as a lion, and we'll see that in a little bit, a little bit more detail. He will have a permanent possession of a scepter, which is a symbol of kingship, of royalty, of rulership. And all nations will owe allegiance to Judah. And to sum up, a descendant of Judah was going to be the Messiah, king of the nations. But because the clock moves so quickly, we don't have a whole lot of time to really go throughout in detail here. I'm going to trace predictions of the Messiah through history. And the first major prediction here would be David, a man after God's own heart. The Lord revealed to David, now king of Israel, that the Lord was going to greatly bless him forever. And God tells David these words in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13. He said, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. Think about Abraham and Sarah, right? Come from your body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, fast forward many centuries to a little conversation a girl named Mary and an angel named Gabriel had. He tells her God's message in Luke uh, chapter 1, verses 30 to 33. He said, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God, notice this, will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Notice the nature of the announcement. Gabriel told Mary what to name her baby kind of easy. I mean, you know, some pregnant women, they have to go through the baby books, all this kind of stuff. But what it would be like if an angel told you what to name the baby? 
I think I named the baby that name, wouldn't you? He said, call him Jesus. Literally, salvation akin to Joshua in the Old Testament. But look at the description of Jesus. He will be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. The Lord will give the throne of David to him. He will reign over the house of Jacob. His kingdom will be forever. Now, this will be the very one that Jacob predicted would come. His reign will have no end, both in terms of geography and of length of time, worldwide, forever. And true to Gabriel's promise, Mary gave birth to Jesus in Bethlehem. They stayed in town for around six weeks or so until she was able to present him in the temple and offer a poor person sacrifice. Why six weeks? Because a new mother was unclean until six weeks had passed. And she wasn't allowed in the temple until she became ceremonially clean. So six weeks. Now, a man named Simeon blessed him and Joseph and Mary. And then Anna also spoke very well and words of praise regarding them. And then Luke gives this little bit of info in Luke 2.39. Many people miss this. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, as in providing the sacrifice, the offering, what happened? They went home. So with Jesus in Mary's arms, who we call the Holy Family, then went back home to Nazareth. But not to worry. Joseph and Mary loved the Lord God, and they would make that 90-mile trek from Nazareth to Jerusalem every year to observe the Feast of the Passover. Now, it was probably their second trip to Jerusalem after Jesus was born that the Magi came to town. They went to Herod, and they asked him, So, King... Where is the one born king of the Jews? We saw a star and followed it here. We've come to worship him, king. Well, long story short, Herod told them to go look for him in Bethlehem. And then when they found him, to go back to him and report back to him so that he could go and worship him too, right? Well, not so fast. We know the story. Herod was not interested in worshiping the one born king of the Jews. Why? Because he was king of the Jews. He would have no rivals to his throne. And one night shortly after the visit of the Magi, Herod dispatched his soldiers to Bethlehem and had all the baby boys, aged two years and under, killed. But an angel was one step ahead of Herod. He woke Joseph up and told him to get out of town, to get to Egypt and lay low there because the king was on his way to kill the lion of Judah. And at the dead of night, he and Mary and Jesus, Jesus headed for Egypt and waited for a few years until the coast was clear. By that time, Herod had died. But Archelaus, who was just about as bloodthirsty as his dad was, took the throne. And so by stealth, as it were, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus crossed back into the land, and went back home to Nazareth. Jesus grew up. He began his ministry when he was about 30. He did things to demonstrate that, indeed, he was the Messiah. He did things to show that he was bringing in the abundant kingdom, as Jacob said that he would. In this kingdom, disease would be eradicated. Plenty of food to eat. Think of the thousands of sardine sandwiches that Jesus fed to people. Twice. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I don't have an affinity for sardine sandwiches, but that's the only thing I had to eat. I think I'd do that. Forces of evil would be vanquished at his command. Remember how he cast out demons. Even death itself would be a thing of the past as he told people to come out of their graves, and they did. And how would you like to be a loved one at one of the deceased funerals when Jesus was around? The funeral wouldn't last very long, would it? But the lion was supposed to deliver them from Rome. Everybody knew that. They were waiting for him to rise up and save them from oppression. Because isn't that what he said in Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, in one of his first sermons? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who were oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. But how could it be that the Romans were still under, over and oppressing them? They were still under the iron boot of Rome, the, the, the Jews were. Wasn't the Messiah supposed to set them free? When was the lion going to roar? And though Jesus brought the new kingdom blessings, he needed to deal with an oppression far greater, far wider, much deeper than God's people ever imagined. Certainly the Jews knew something about this oppression, and this oppression wasn't really Rome. It was sin. Their rebellion against the Most High God is what caused their captivity in Babylon, and then Persia, and even now their occupation that Rome had with them. They knew their sin. Passover lambs, Yom Kippur, so much blood. And though the lion was going to usher in a permanent golden age at some point, he first had to set the captives free. All of them. And so when Jesus was about 33 years old, the lion played the role of the lamb. The one who was fearless in the face of religious hypocrisy, who demonstrated devastating power over evil forces, who commanded nature with the word and with a simple gesture, peace, be still, who had absolute authority to forgive sins, was now going to fulfill the role of the suffering servant. See, the Jews missed that part. The oppressed included many more people than just Jews. The ultimate enemy that oppressed the entire world was not Rome. It was the devil. And the sinless Son of God paid the price to set all people free. It was His blood that did it. And it was in that sacrifice the lion of the tribe of Judah roared the loudest. The real oppressor of the human race had to be vanquished. The battle for the souls of men was waged and won on two pieces of wood as the lion turned lamb suspended between heaven and earth. And here's how the writer to the Hebrews described it. Hebrews chapter 2, verses uh, 14 to 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That is the real oppression, is it not? The fear of death. 
For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation, the satisfaction for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And when the lamb of the cr- when the lamb from the cross roared as a lion, it is finished. The power of the oppressor was broken. The one who had the power of death was destroyed. He was rendered inoperative, brought to nothing. And on that resurrection Sunday, three days after Jesus was placed in the tomb, that's where dead people go, you know. He emerged himself victorious over death. He arose. And now that he's raised, the lion of the tribe of Judah has ascended and is now ruling and reigning. Messiah has ushered in the foretaste of glory divine. He has sent his spirit to carry on the work of salvation that he began. See, the Holy Spirit convicts, gives new life, empowers, teaches, guides, and is continually making his people new. Have you experienced that? And though Jesus gave us a taste of all that he's going to usher in, how we all need encouragement in our day. Let us count the ways that despair could overtake us. At the end of the first century, things were intense as well. Mass persecution was going on. Torture's most hideous was the plight of the Christians. And I'd like for us to go to Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. John the Apostle was no stranger to persecution. Church tradition tells us that he was boiled in oil and he lived. He was also taken from his ministry, caring for the church in Ephesus and even caring for Mary, the mother of Jesus. He was placed in prison on the island of Patmos. And on one glorious Lord's Day, Sunday, heaven visited John. Beginning with Jesus in all of his glory, he appeared to his beloved disciple and John fell down as dead. Fainted dead away, but in his tender mercy, the Lord Jesus placed his right hand, the hand of honor on John. And the glorified Lord Jesus told him in Revelation 1, 17 to 19, he said this, fear not. And with all due respect, if I were John, I don't think I could have obeyed that command. But the Lord continued, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen and those that are and those that are to take place after this. And soon after these things, John looked and behold, there was a door open in heaven. And the first voice, he said, that I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once, John said, I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne and in faithful obedience to the Lord's command to write. John wrote unspeakable things of the glory and the majesty and all that was and continues to take place around the throne of God. And then John experienced this. 
Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and looked, took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked. And I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voices of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor, and glory, and might, forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And that was just the beginning of John's witness of the lion of the tribe of Judah. Later on in his vision, John sees a lion breaking every seal on the scroll, the title deed to the earth. At the right time, he will return here and claim what is rightly his. He was the agent of creation, and he purchased this place with his own blood. And at the right time, the lion will return and save his people. Read all about it in Revelation 19, and we heard it earlier today, so you can read it again. He will destroy his enemies with the word, the sharp sword that comes out of his mouth. His words literally will have life or death significance. And for a thousand years, the lion will usher in his kingdom full force. He will make all things new. And with the coming of Messiah, there will be paradise-like splendor. And what I'm about to read, what I'm about to share with you, it was um, the, the opulence and those kinds of things that they could understand in their day. So kind of translate that opulence in ways that we can understand. One author describes it's, uh, the, the millennium as exuberant, intoxicating, 
abundance. It will be the golden age of the coming one whose universal rule was predicted. Grapevines will be so abundant that they will be used for hitching posts. Wine will be as abundant as, as wash water. People's eyes will be bright from an abundance of wine, and their teeth will be white from drinking much milk. Such opulence will be evident in the millennium. And at the end of these days, the lion will be the one before whom we will all stand. This ferocious one will sit on the great white throne. We will all give an account to him of our lives. To include Herod. Remember that puny little king who tried to kill the lion? Yeah, that one. What do you think that interchange is going to be like between him and King Jesus? And on a more personal level, what will be the interchange you will have with him? That I will have with him. And the lion of the tribe of Judah will speak. It will be a most terrifying roar to those who he will condemn. Those who never repented of their sin and embraced his gospel will hear him say, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And these shall go away into eternal punishment. But to those who are righteous, who have repented of their sin and embraced his gospel, the very same line will utter the sweetest words any human could or would hear. Come you, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And the righteous will then go into eternal life. This, my friends, is the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is our king. This is our protector, our provider, to whom all praise is due. (laughs) So what is our response? What can we say in response to this? Simple, but profound. Just as we took a journey through Scripture and heard God's story over this Christmas season, let's follow the lion on the journey. Since the day salvation has come to us, come to you and me personally, by res- as we've responded to the Holy Spirit's conviction in our lives, we've repented of our sins and we embrace the gospel of Christ, we were no longer at home in this world. Do you believe that? Does your lifestyle reflect that? See, we were set apart for God and we were given a new life. Literally, the life of God's lion was given to us. Jesus encapsulated in his famous words in John 10.10. And he said, I came that they might have life and might have it abundantly. This was spoken not to the world, spoken to his sheep, his sheep. And Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Are you his sheep? If you are, he's given you an abundant life. And since that day, Jesus' saying has been true of every one of us who are his sheep. He says, we are in the world, but we're not of the world. Truly, 
the abundant life Jesus gives to his people is the only way to live. Can you identify with that? It's a new identity as his people. His ways of Torah are on our hearts. We have received forgiveness of sins now and forever. We have power to live his supernatural life in the here and now. And we have a sure and settled hope in the life to come. And so, while we're waiting to meet the lion of the tribe of Judah face to face, how then shall we live? We live out the abundant life. We make Jesus' words that we are in the world but not of it conspicuous in our lives. And we, we also need to get ready to go home. Home where we belong, where we will gladly say we long with all of our hearts to have this one rule over us. Because how many people say we will not have this one to rule over us? To God be the glory. Great things he has done. Let's pray. Lion of the tribe of Judah, the fierce one, the one whom no one can withstand, the one who will destroy all enemies, but the one who is a friend of sinners. We are sinners, Lord, in need of salvation. One day, Lord, most everyone in this room, if not everyone, repented from those sins. Those sins that put you on that cross, Lord. One day, we turned and one day we followed you as the lion of the tribe of Judah, who now is our protector who now is our guide by your spirit. Lord, we look around the world today now and we see the danger that's here and is put here so often, Lord, by by people who hate you. But we're reminded, Lord, that you sit in the heavens and you laugh. You will hold them in derision. But Lord, your people are being tried Your people are being persecuted. Your people are suffering. And Lord, you take that personally. One day, you're going to right all the wrongs. One day. But as we know, that's not this day. So Lord, please help us when the going gets tough to look to you. Help us, Lord, to know with sure Uh, with, with absolute assurance that you are going to come back. Lord, your word has told us. Your word has, 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 has share, share with us the promise that you came the first time and that very same promise includes that you're going to return. And so, Lord, I pray that you help us. Lord, we're in the middle of this. We're not at the end. Help us, please, to give you the praise and the glory and the honor by the way that we live our lives. Lord, we want to tell you and show you that we love you. Help us to do that through our obedience, our grateful obedience. Now, Lord, I pray as we turn our attention to the giving and to the singing, or maybe do this as an offering to you because we are grateful for what you've done for us because you've loved us first. In Jesus' name we pray.